This episode is brought to you by the Weekend University's Day on Human Nature online conference, taking place on Sunday, December 19th, 2021. This will be a full day of interactive talks with leading psychologists, professors, and neuroscientists exploring the hidden forces that drive human behavior. In the first talk, Dr. Graham Music will discuss the surprising links between attachment patterns, neurobiology, and altruism, and how you can use these insights to create more well-being in day-to-day life. The second lecture from Cambridge neuroscientist Dr. Hannah Critchlow will explore what the latest neuroscience research reveals about how much free will we really have and what you can do to consciously shape a better future, both for yourself and the wider world. And the final talk will be from Dr. Nancy Segal, who will speak on how the latest research in twin studies might finally help us resolve the nature versus nurture debate. By attending live, you can interact with world-class speakers and leading academics in real time, get your questions answered in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference, and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. Additionally, the Weekend University guarantees an excellent learning experience. Therefore, if you attend and aren't fully satisfied with your experience, you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021. That's bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021. And use the discount code POD when registering. That's POD when registering, all one word. You can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode. In this interview, I spoke with Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a writer, TED speaker, and the best-selling author of several books, including The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get More Things Done. This conversation focuses on Oliver's most recent book, 4,000 Weeks, which is about making the most of the very brief amount of time we all have here on the planet. I can honestly say that there have been few books that have impacted me as much as this one, and if you can apply some of Oliver's insights and perspectives in your own life, they have the potential to dramatically transform your relationship with time into one that feels life-giving rather than crushing. Adam Grant has called it the most important book ever written about time management, while podcast host Krista Tippett says, It invites nothing less than a new relationship with time and with life itself. I hope you get as much from this conversation as I did preparing for it and recording it. You can learn more about Oliver's work at www.oliverberkman.com and follow him on Twitter at Oliver Berkman. Okay, so I'm joined here by Oliver Berkman. Um, Oliver is the author of a, a new book called 4,000 Weeks, which um, I think is uh, it's had a huge impact on me, and I think there's some powerful ideas in there. But Oliver, maybe to get started, the, the whole book seems to revolve around um, an experience you had in a, on a park bench in, a, in New York. Could you maybe tell us about what this experience was and why this was such an important realization for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think this was a sort of an, it was one of those intellectual insights that is really only the beginning of a process of coming to see things differently, because it's the bit where, it's the bit where you work it out on an intellectual level, um, and then actually sort of living the the thing is a, is a different challenge. But um, yeah, I was, as I have been for many years and maybe to still some extent I'm still today what I refer to in the book as a productivity geek you know somebody really really obsessed with time management systems and how to organize the day and how to get things done and how to be more productive and optimized and all the rest of it it's a huge there's a a huge sort of subculture of uh, people fixated on these things and I always felt like I was just about I was just on the verge of getting my life kind of totally sorted out and get really sort of in control of my time and uh, doing my work at the rate that I needed to, to stay on top of it and making time for the other things in my life. I was always just on the cusp of this, but never quite getting there. And this park bench experience was just a sort of small epiphany that I had on a, 
winter's morning in Prospect Park in Brooklyn, where I, you know, I had a day coming up that day that was, I think, a bit more, even more busy than usual. The number of things I told myself I absolutely had to get through by the end of the day was even greater than usual. And I was sitting there sort of scheming and trying to figure out what combination of time blocking and the Pomodoro technique and using a timer and this, what I was going to do to try to like finally make it through and do all this stuff. And just being struck by the idea of like, hold on, like none of this is ever going to work. Um, I have, at this point, I'd been writing a column in The Guardian for years, you know, um, one of the things I got to do there was to test out vast numbers of productivity techniques and read all sorts of books that many people don't necessarily get the time to read. And it's like, so far, none of them had, I mean, they'd worked in a certain sense of the word work, but none of them had brought me this feeling of total serenity and mastery over my time that I was chasing. And I suddenly had the thought like, oh, maybe I'm, maybe it's not that I haven't found the right answer yet. Maybe there's something wrong with the question. You know, maybe, maybe it's time to do something radically different. And that was sort of the start of my investigations of, you know, how we, how I and how people in general, I, I think, relate to time uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. And some of the sort of, uh unconscious or semi-conscious emotional motives that are driving us when we're in this state of like trying to get on top of everything or trying to reach inbox zero or or trying to get to the bottom of our increasingly ambitious to-do lists and all the rest of it so um yeah that was that was the beginning of something um i think the thing that it was the beginning of is still uh, ongoing you know i don't think I've, I've i've not figured all of this out permanently and totally or anything like that it seems that you know your approach before it was all it was always around tackling sort of symptoms and trying to trying to manage things, but the but the the fundamental paradigm was flawed, and it was these sort of very deep unconscious assumptions we have around time that seems to be the root of the cause. Now, one of the I was trying to figure out you know what are the kind of key ideas from this book, and one of the things that kept coming back a recurring theme was this idea of we need to confront our finitude and our limitations. That seems to be very important. And I'd, I'd be curious to ask you, you know, wh why is that so important that we do that? And what are the benefits of embracing our limitations and our finitude? Yeah, I think that is absolutely the question that I'm kind of attempting to track through this book. Um, there's a quotation that I use twice in the book, actually, from a psychotherapist and writer called Bruce Tift, uh, and I won't get it precisely right from memory, but he he talks about how we all um, kind of try to, we do all sorts of things in life to try to avoid consciously participating in what, in the experience of being um, sort of constrained and almost imprisoned by reality, right? So we find ourselves in this reality where we are limited, where you have only a certain amount of time on the planet, only a certain amount of time in the day, only a certain amount of uh, talent and other resources to do stuff with your time and very little control over the future. Um, so all these different ways were sort of very limited and it feels at least uncomfortable to be limited in that way. So it feels uncomfortable to think, I don't know if I can get through all the things that people want me to get done by the end of this week, or I don't know if the novel I'm about to start investing a lot of time in writing is going to be any good. Uh, or I don't know if this relationship that I'm embarking on is going to be the one, or if it's going to end in sort of uh, acrimony uh, a month from now, you know, you don't, all these different ways in which our, 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 our situation as humans, is kind of limited and constraining and uncomfortable. And in some ways you can understand like the whole of the tradition of like old school psychoanalysis as being like all the things that we do and the counterproductive behaviors that we engage in, in order to avoid feeling that feeling, you know, in order to feel like um, we don't have to um, accept the, the ground rules of, of being, human um 
and in specifically in this context of time and time management, I think anyone who is telling themselves, as I think a lot of people are, and I was, you know, I'm, I'm on a path to a point at which sometime in the future, I'm going to have my life in working order. I'm going to be on top of everything. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to have it all running properly and smoothly. I think what they're basically doing is they're chasing a fantasy and it's more comfortable to chase that fantasy than it is to face the truth, which is that, you know, we live in a world where there is always going to be more that you should be doing on some level than you can do. Uh, you're never going to have that kind of control over the future. Things like relationships and big creative projects and all the rest of it are never going to be unscary. It's all built in. It's like that just comes with the territory. So um, one of the things that, I mean, I'm kind of laying out the whole thesis of the book here. So if you interrupt, if you want me to, 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 if you want to move on to something oh, no, different. But, Take your time. I think that... Um, the reason like, like it would be okay to spend your life avoiding reality in that way if, if it didn't have any negative effects right who cares right but but i think what happens is and i try to unpack this in the book in trying to use time in this way in trying to sort of avoid confronting our limitations we end up um sort of postponing the meaning of life into the future we make ourselves busier actually because the more you try to process the more work is generated. Um, we end up spending our time on less and less of the meaningful things that we really care about. So it's all really negative. It's in the service of this kind of avoidance, but it leads to a less meaningful life. And therefore, you know, the obvious reason to try to turn and face those limitations instead is that that's when you see where you really stand. And that's when you get to say, okay, I have all these limitations, including the limited amount of time. I'm not going to get to do everything that feels like it matters or even very much of, of what feels like it matters. Um, but once you've given up that impossible struggle to transcend being human, then you can say, well, okay, so these are my limits. And now I can actually use this time to focus on a few things that really matter. So, so to me, the big benefit of confronting limitation is just that it, it's about seeing how things actually are in, in reality. And the more that you can work with reality, the more that you can actually use the resources that you have and the time that you have to build an incredibly meaningful life that makes a difference. If you're always caught in this fantasy of soon I'm going to be in control, then you never quite get around to doing those, those things. There you go. Whole thesis of the book. <laughs> I think we can... In the interview now um yeah it's it seems that even you know when we when we don't do this and when we make ourselves excessively busy by taking on loads of different projects this is almost just a way to avoid confronting our limitations and just to to, to postpone that you know that seems to be something that that keeps coming up um now yeah you mentioned there Bruce Tift. Bruce, Bruce Tift is actually speaking at we we run the conference. He's actually speaking this month, so it's a small world. There you go. Oh, um, right. But uh, there's another person. I can't remember the person that uh, you quoted in the book. Um, but the, basically, the quote was, "We best uh, we best teach what we most need to learn." And I'm just curious, how has writing this book changed you as a person? Yeah, that's Richard Bach. And I think, you know, that's, that's the that's the rather flattering way of putting it is that, you know, um, the, the reason if this book is of any value to anyone, the reason that it's of any value is because it, I was writing the book that I that I needed to read. Um, the less flattering way of putting it would just be that all books in this kind of genre of advice or self-help or whatever you want to call it um, are basically just the authors grappling with their own issues. Um, I hope I've grappled productively with my own issues here in a way that kind of is helpful for other people, but it's not like I'm, I didn't come at this, it's not like I've figured everything out, so now I'm going to graciously let um, everyone else follow my example. It's much more sort of, where can we go, you know, it's a sort of bewildering journey that we're all on together, but, but it, it changed me, I guess, just because, um, 
well, for me as a writer anyway, I can't understand what I think about something until I've tried to put it into book form. So I think, or into an article or writing. So it's not, I think some people might think that the process here is that you sort of, you figure some stuff out and then you write it down. But actually the writing is the process of figuring of figuring out for me anyway. So, so it changed me in that respect. Um, also, it's just like a big commitment. And so it really um, foregrounds this kind of question of uh, what are you going to sacrifice? Uh, how are you going to use your limited time? Uh, what's the best way to use the fact that you have, you know, only 24 hours in a day and limited energy and limited talents? And, and, and so, you know, it's a big, scary-ish kind of project that throws those things into into relief um i could talk about this till the cows come home but just one thing that occurs to me there is that was the discovery that i was much more meaningfully productive in the long run when i did not try to do more than about three or four hours work a day on this book than those times that i tried to sort of power through to a full-length working day of writing so that's a good example i think a simple example of where um acknowledging your own limits is actually a really it, it's the way to produce more you know um on it's when it comes to sort of any work that involves deep focus i think i don't think many people can do more than about four hours of it in a day um i'll be honest um reading this book and engaging with these ideas felt like felt like therapy to me it felt like a sigh of relief i was like <gasps> I can breathe, you know, I can sort of take the pressure off a bit and slow down a bit and pick things that really matter and focus on those. And I, I'm not going to get everything done and that's perfectly okay. You know, it's, it's okay to sort of be in the midst of a bit of chaos and a bit, a bit of uncertainty and just know that I can only get a certain amount done in a day and that's perfectly fine. And I can go again tomorrow, you know? Um, so I'm just curious after, you know, after you've written this book, Oliver, um, what, has your definition of what you would consider a good life changed at all? Has your, yeah, has it reorientated your value system in any way? Well, what would you consider the good life to be now after doing this? Um, yeah, that, that is a really interesting question. I'm not sure I have a sort of, I'm not, I'm thinking about what I, what I think the answer is. One of the things that I tried to avoid doing in this book was, um, sort of offering that kind of laundry list of like, you know, these are the six things that are better to spend your life on than other things. So time in nature and time with friends, because I feel like everyone knows that, you know, and, and I'm not necessarily a particularly great exemplar of, of any of them, but um, I think that, yeah, in the sort of the simplest way to say that would be that I think it did attune me to the meaningfulness of very small things and very ordinary things in my life it, it sort of disabused me of a certain notion that meaningful and is the same as extraordinary that you have to sort of do unusual things or reach particular heights of accomplishment or something like that in order for life to be meaningful and then a bit more subtly I guess it's just for me it's always been the question of finding this synthesis of being present in the moment which you have to be if you're going to ever value your life you're going to have to be present to what's happening right now with wanting to still hold on to this idea that you know accomplishing big goals and whether extraordinary or otherwise you know being on a being on a path somewhere is actually a, a important part of a meaningful life right so if all you thought you had to do in life was was just be completely present in the moment, it would seem to nullify the idea of working on the project of writing a book or on the project of parenting a child or becoming a better spouse or anything like that, you know. And so finding how those two can overlap, that's important to me because I don't really want to give up either of them. It seems pretty obvious you've got to be present in the moment, but it also seems pretty obvious I wouldn't be happy if I was if I was doing nothing but I mean quite apart from the fact that I wouldn't be able to pay the mortgage or eat if I wasn't if I was just um 
smelling the roses um but there's something important to a meaningful life as well about about you know working on things and getting better at things and, and things like that so i found more of a place i think where those two are both present 100 percent, 100 percent uh now over i'd like to talk maybe about some of the root causes of our dysfunctional relationship with time and for me at least it seems like this one of the core of these root causes might have been with the, with the invention of the clock and whenever that happened and whenever we had the industrial revolution mm. for the first time we started to look at time as an abstract thing that was separate from us that we could measure that we could quantify that we could use you know and because because of that it um <laughs> that's when this whole sort of the, the, the problems might have started. So maybe if you could explain that, I'm explaining that very clumsily. So maybe if you could elaborate, elaborate on that a bit better and explain some of the other root causes of our dysfunctional relationship with time. Yeah, no, I don't think that was, uh, did you say clumsy? I don't think that was clumsy at all. Um, I don't really attempt in the book to, to, to say it was technology or it was economic forces. Or I think it's a huge mixture of, technological developments, economic developments, things that are probably completely timeless in humans about um, not liking the fact that we're uh, finite and mortal. But the, so they all sort of, they, they all play a part and it's all impossible to disentangle. But yeah, I think the, the clock and that the the pattern, the sort of force, the sort of changes that the clock was part of, are all have to do with coming to think of time as something separate from oneself, right? They all have to do with coming to think of time as a thing, which is the sort of what the way I put it in the book. It's not a very, uh, not a very sort of uh, technical way of describing it, but like we just even without concentrating on this, I think we just think of time as a as a thing. It's a thing that like maybe you think of a, a timeline running alongside you as you go through the day or you're imagining a calendar or a little set of boxes or whatever your mental image is there's somehow you and then there's time and you have to fit things that you're doing into the time um you might worry that there's not enough time to get through all the things you have and that's all very those are all spatial metaphors when you start to actually try to try to think about time Something is strange about thinking about it in, in this way that comes from things like the clock, because then you can quantify it and you can start to think about it as this abstract entity. And we sort of need to have that idea of an abstract entity in order to do lots of things that we can do in the modern world. But it's also the source of a lot of our problems. And I think that a lot of people in the times before clocks and in pre-industrial um, cultures would not have had that idea at all of time as a separate thing it was just like time was the medium in which their lives unfolded um the example i've given before is you know if you'd gone up to a medieval english peasant and said uh, who like a dairy farmer say and said um uh you know i read in this productivity book that you should batch your activities because that's a really efficient way to get through them so why don't we do all the milking of the cows for this year in the next week to get it out of the way it's obviously completely absurd. You can't think about time in that way, moving things around, becoming more efficient with it. You're just, it just is, and it flows, and you milk the cows when they need milking. And and uh, and I think in many ways, it would have been a much more peaceful kind of relationship with time. Because once you see it as this resource, you then think of it as a resource you have to use well, it becomes possible for people to you know, monetize that resource and to buy your time. And, um, and then all the sort of problems of overwhelm and trying to fit more into time than, than we have available all come from, but they're all premised on that idea that it is even a thing that you could do all that stuff uh, with. But as I say, I think, you know, I think capitalism is a big part of this and, and the invention of measurement of time is a big part of this, but also a big part of it is just that, like, we've probably never been happy about this situation of um, of having limited time. And 
so even in you know writing from philosophy from ancient rome you see people complaining about the amount they have and wondering how to cram more in and, and all the rest of it so it's it's a, it's a huge mixture of things but yeah it all comes down i think to this sort of alienated thing where there's time and then there's you and these are separate things and very soon it turns into an adversarial relationship and you're in some kind of struggle with this thing called time i hope that makes a little bit of sense 100 percent. yeah it's just it seems that the the second we entered into a subject object relationship with time that was exactly. that, yeah. that's a big problem um you mentioned the work of martin heidegger a lot in the in the book and his concept that we are time could you maybe tell us about that and maybe um about heidegger as well because we sort of have to do like a disclaimer whenever we're talking yeah, about heidegger. disclaimer ever <laughs> um I mean, so there's two disclaimers actually about Heidegger. And the one you're referring to, I think, is that he was literally a Nazi for a number of years, a card-carrying member of the Nazi party. In an era when this word gets thrown around in like social media feuds, sometimes just refer to anyone you don't like, it, it's a, you have to sort of stop and say like, no, 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 I really mean it. Um, and there's a long and huge debate about whether that, and how that should impact on our reading of his philosophy. I just completely sidestep that in the book. I think these are useful ideas and I'm not willing to let a Nazi hold them hostage, basically. So, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, take the idea and, uh, and, uh, you know, I don't care about the terrible, terrible, and not care about the terrible originator of them. The other caveat is that I, I don't think anyone is, there's not I don't think there's a deep consensus on what he meant and what he was saying so it's possible that some Heidegger experts would think that my use of him is illegitimate in that way as well but I think that the the gist of this notion which I do think is true whether it was Heidegger's uh idea or not is that there's some sense in which being is synonymous with time uh i've since writing the book discovered that this is an idea that is very central to the soto zen tradition as well and there's a thinker called dogen who i maybe ought to have used instead because he wasn't a nazi um who's so much the same thing this idea that it doesn't really make sense to think about our limited time as one of the various problems and issues that we have to cope with as human beings it, it's so fundamental it defines us so completely that before we even begin to cope with anything in life, right? You already find yourself here in this brief portion of time uh, with your, your biography behind you coming up to now, everywhere you came from and everything that's formed you up to this moment is there. You can't escape it. You are, time is moving forwards and you are going to die one day and you don't know when. And you're sort of, you're already, you're so completely in Sometimes people talk about time as being like you're on a, on a raft on a river or something, but it's actually makes, seems to make more sense to say that you are the river. Um, there's no, you can't get outside of it or um, sort of pause anything or sort of, sort of get a vantage point from which you're not already in it. So these are all just different ways of saying, I think that um, this, this, Finitude, this limitation of time is so fundamental to our lives that it that it's very hard to distinguish our lives from it. Uh, and I don't know, this works for some people, this way of talking and, and not for others. But to me, that then helps you see a lot of the things that we do, the dysfunctional things that we do with time, just on a day to day basis. And, you know, including being a productivity geek to, a, to an overly extreme degree as this strange sort of um, thrashing around in the, in, the, in the river of time that we are in some effort to kind of get outside of it to, um, you know, it's like, um, it's like the, the legend of Baron Munchausen trying to pull himself out of a swamp by his own hair, right? You're sort of, you're trying to do something that, is, that makes no sense when you try to get on top of time or master time, because if you already are time, these concepts just, just um, you've short-circuited all that. So I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a, 
I don't know how helpful this notion is for people, but to me, there's something really liberating and relaxing and inspiring and motivating in the notion that I don't need to try to get on top of my time. I just need to try to inhabit the reality of it more fully. A hundred percent. There's a few <laughs> things to kind of unpack there. Um, just, just, <laughs> uh, just going back to Heidi or so, um, I think you're spot on to sort of not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. And especially in, you know, the culture we live in today, that I think there's so much value in being able to separate a person from their ideas. And just because someone has a, has a questionable character, because we're all human, we've all, I'm, I'm not making excuses for Nazis here, by the way, but what I'm, <laughs> no. trying to, what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of value being able to take a person's ideas without, without their, their whole kind of character as well. That, I think that's important. And then in the book, you talk about how Heidegger, um, he, he's so difficult to read because he's trying to talk about things that are outside of our normal view. Like reality is constructed by, by language to a large extent. And he's trying to put things into words that are, there's not a common language for them. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I again, I have to issue all the caveats about my lone lack of professional expertise, and you know, but but yeah, I think that um, one of the things he's trying to do is to sort of so much of our discussion about philosophy and about all sorts of things is about the way that things are, um, what kind of elements there are in reality, how they relate to each other, what causes the other, what causes certain effects, la la la. And he sort of wants to get in before that and say, let's look at the fact that there is being before we look at how things are. Let's look at the fact that things are. Um, and, and then let's look in the specific case of conscious humans at what it is for a human being to be. I don't know if you need me to repeat these things when there's occasional um, stray kid sounds. Don't, um, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all um, good. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, you're trying to sort of get in before the language comes and then clamps down and starts looking at um, the specifics of the picture of reality and sort of pointing out how astonishing it is that like anything is you know, instead of instead of otherwise and then secondly uh, how, how what it what the specific quality of that isness is for a human um, which is this idea of being already in time and already as time um, and yeah so he ends up using these crazy phrases um, uh, that uh, his English translators then, you know, translate in crazy ways as well. I think partly it's useful because it sort of brings you up short and you've got to look at a phrase like being towards death as a noun phrase. And, and like, uh, you might not understand what it means, but at least you don't have the luxury of just gliding past it, which is what he wants to avoid, I think. 100%. Um, I think another, another one of the phrases that you use in the book is something like from Heidegger, uh, language, is, language is the house of being. And I think that's where we're, we're kind of getting at here. Um, now, you talk in the book about the, the, there's a big mindfulness culture now. And, you know, everyone's a lot of people are meditating and they're, they're, which is a great thing. But sometimes that can actually sort of take us out of the moment because we're, we're trying to be in the moment, you know, and yeah. you say there's great power, there's great power. And just really realizing that you, you, it's, it's impossible not to be in the moment. Like it's impossible to, to step outside of it. Whenever you, whenever you realize that you realize that, um, yeah, you're, you're always here, if that, if that makes sense. Even when you're thinking about the future, it's always now. And that can be something that's a bit, bit freeing and takes off the pressure to, to be in the moment, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, yeah, mindfulness and formal meditation is incredibly useful. It's been incredibly useful to me, but it's not immune from the possibility of turning it into another project that is going to take you to this perfect place of um, 
being able to uh you know get around the rules of of uh the human condition uh it's just as much prone to that in some ways it's a little worse because you can tell yourself you're doing you're being present in the moment all the while that you're actually kind of strenuously trying to reach spiritual enlightenment or something um and yes there is something really powerful i think in, in seeing what is actually obvious which is that you always are in the moment that worry about the future and regret about the past can only ever be arising as thoughts in the present moment that's an example to me of a realization that that has this effect of of uh bringing you more in touch with the place that you are and that that seeing that 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 you know you are time in this sense so it's it's always this i mean there are different words for it in different traditions but it's always this idea of that something is already true and you're sort of stepping more fully into a conscious experience of the fact that it's already true so and that i think goes through this book and lots of other books as well right it's not about it, it's about becoming more conscious of what of the way things already are it's about a certain kind of realization it's not about changing things so much as changing your kind of um the degree to which you're participating in it and and one the the reason to sort of see that you're always present in the moment is that it makes it a little easier to sort of do that change from being in denial to being in uh, sort of cooperating with with reality instead. Hundred uh, percent. So another thing you talk about in the book is this idea of um, of, of leisure, and I think in modern society, busyness has become like. It's a, it's a symbol of status. Like people think if I'm busy, I'm important, you know, mm -hmm. but in the ancient, with the ancient Greeks and everything, like leisure was sort of like the, the thing, like the ultimate sort of good, like the thing around which everything else was, was aimed. And what are your thoughts on uh, our modern approach to, to leisure? Cause you, you critique it quite a bit in the book and there's some funny examples in there, but I'll, I'll let you uh, maybe share your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I, this comes in the book after a chapter where I've been talking about the sort of perils of instrumentalizing time too much, of investing too much in the idea of time as something you use for a future benefit instead of participating in the moment now, and how, you know, we all have to use time instrumentally to some extent um, to get things done and to achieve goals, but that when you totally invest in time in that way, you're sort of by definition postponing the meaning of life to the future you're saying that the only value of how i'm using this hour is whether or not it adds up to this this thing later on and i think that's particularly ironic in the context of rest and leisure right to do that to your leisure time to decide that your leisure time has to be in self-improvement in some way or at the very least sort of recuperation so that you can go back and do more work you know to see leisure as serving some purpose other than itself is more ironic than with other things because it's like it's leisure it's that what 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 how is it rest if you're if if the if it's entirely defined as something for the for the future so this is the distinction between you know going for a run and training for a 10k it's not wrong to spend your leisure time training for a for an event um or you know all sorts of other things but but to do it exclusively is is almost to again it's just to sort of turn leisure into work so i mean aristotle who is the source of this notion that leisure is the the highest goal because everything else is always for something else but but leisure is for itself and the benefits of all the other things you do in life is supposed to be for leisure i mean it's worth saying that what he meant by leisure i think was you know philosophy it was it wasn't uh wasn't vegging out but but yeah he he did see i think the act of philosophizing as as self-justifying and and i think there are all sorts of forces today that push us towards wanting to think of everything as justified in terms of something else 
And if everything you're doing is justified in terms of something else, then you've sort of sapped the meaning from, from life uh, because you never get to this point in the future where you say, okay, now, now is the moment of truth. This has all been building up to. I think a great illustration of this is the difference between Rod Stewart's hobbies and Richard Branson's hobbies. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, I was just really struck um, to read a few years ago that um, Rod Stewart turned out he'd actually revealed this on multiple occasions to railway modeling magazines that he, that he has a sort of vast model railway set up. Um, a really sort of intricate thing based on a based on a, on a historical um, city that's partly New York and partly Chicago, and uh, he was so wedded to it that um, that I don't know if this is still the case, but that he used to um, sometimes request an additional hotel room for it when he went on tour, so that he, he could carry on working on his train set. And I think what's interesting about that is <clears throat> that. Um, it doesn't, it's very hard to see anything in that, that knowledge that Rod Stewart has that uh, passion that sort of helps his personal brand. It's a little bit like nerdy. It detracts a little bit maybe from this idea of the leather trousered, gravelly voiced rock star. Um, and it doesn't sort of, it doesn't, it's not profitable for him. It doesn't help him make more, like nothing. It, it, it makes you realize that he must just really love uh, model railways, <laughs> just purely for the process, for the act of doing it. And I slightly meanly in a throwaway line, compare that with, you know, all the pictures that you see of Richard Branson kite surfing and things like that, doing other sort of daredevil sports. I mean, he may well absolutely love them. I haven't interviewed him to find out. The point I'm making in the book is like, it does really help his personal brand to be photographed doing those things. It does have an instrumental value. Um, I, it's not for me to say that he doesn't absolutely love it as well, but it's easier to think that he's sort of doing that because of something else, an image, uh, a sense of himself. And, and it's, there's something very moving, I think, about the, the thought of Rod Stewart tinkering with his uh, model train <laughs> Uh, layout um, that sort of focuses the attention on how it it's kind of it's important I think that to try to have something in your life that you're doing for itself alone and I think it also flags up something else which is that I, I don't think it's a coincidence that the things that people do for the for for the activity alone which are things we tend to call hobbies are kind of they're a little bit cringe. They're a little bit embarrassing. It's kind of not. It's not. Um, it's not cool to um, to have that kind of activity in your life. And I don't think that's coincidence. I think that things that we can't instrumentalize are kind of, or that we don't instrumentalize. People who don't instrumentalize every hour of their leisure time are doing something a little bit subversive, and that is kind of culturally. It's at odds with the the. The message, the sort of driving direction of the culture, which I think is also why, if you can make money out of your hobby, whereupon it becomes a side hustle, in the lingo, that's really cool. That's like that's a that's a thing to celebrate and 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 sort of tweet about and have a blog, where you write about it. But but pure hobbies, like to just like to paint miniature figurines or to, um, I don't know. Uh, any 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 other you know knit or, or or write short stories that you never intend to publish there's something there's something that is not cool about it and I think it's not cool because it is actually very important to to well-being 100 percent. my my favorite activity of the week is playing a game of five-a-side football with some with some friends like and there's no there's no purpose it's just we just want to get together and play for an hour and yeah it's 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 brilliant um yeah a perspective that you that you share in the book as well. There are loads of different sort of perspectives in there that can sort of reframe your your relationship with time. And one of the ones I really liked was this idea that everything is borrowed time. Can you tell us about that there and why that's why that can be a helpful view of of time? Uh, do you know what I mean there? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is um, some of the phrasing here as I 
as I do say in the book, uh, comes from a, a writer and a blogger called David Kane, whose blog, Raptitude, I really, uh, really rate. So I just want to make sure he gets a, excuse me, I want to make sure he gets a, a credit there. The, the, uh, he wrote a, a piece that I mentioned in the book about um, spending an evening on a road, on a particular street in uh, Toronto, where um, a couple of weeks later um, there was a there was a shooting um, in which several people were killed, um, and having this notion of like oh, it, like it's just sheer random luck that it wasn't that night that I was on that street and having this notion that like there is no law of the universe that says I get to be alive and to keep being alive and it's basically luck that um that that carries on and I think there's a sort of broader reframing here which is yeah we're back to Heidegger and this kind of amazing fact that things are and that we are here we spend so much time maybe it's not everyone, but I certainly have done, spend so much time like objecting to the details of the way things are right now, because, um, you know, I wish things were a bit different or I wish I had got through my work or I, uh, you know, I, I wish I lived somewhere different or whatever, that we, that we sort of completely skip past how extraordinary it is that we get this, I mean, it's, it's, crazy this idea this, to, to, to be alive for a little while um and, and there is a kind of reframing here where you want to say well okay maybe life isn't really short because we are comparing our lifespan to you know implicitly to having having eternal life or something maybe life is really long because it's all additional to what we had any right to expect i mean this gets a little bit uh obscure but if you sort of think of all the people who could have lived and then the people who did, we're in a sort of tiny elite uh, for having to act, having actually got to um, experience a lifespan. And I also write in the book about a guy who I interviewed a while ago who, who's, um, who uh, was close friends with somebody who died fairly young um and who found himself after that you know stuck in traffic thinking wow what would my friend have given to be in this traffic jam or in a queue at the supermarket like what would he have given to be in this queue and this kind of really extraordinary kind of gratitude where you suddenly think it kind of most of the time doesn't really matter so much what is going on in life if you can hold a bit of your focus on this idea that that life is going on and that's kind of extraordinary um and then just finally i think it also changes the the equation when it comes to tough choices with time and thinking like well i'd really like to pursue this career but i also want to pursue this one i'm going to have to make a choice or i'd really um i'd i'd really like to uh commit to this relationship but I also like to be single you know all these things that people uh, end up mired in indecision about for, for years but it's a lot less of a horrible situation to be in if you think about everything being borrowed time in this sense because you stop thinking about you, you get rid of this idea where you're implicitly like it would be best to try to fit everything in but you can't and that's really annoying and and a huge insult so you have to make some choices and it's isn't that terrible it, instead you can sort of think of it as a menu right it's like nobody expects to it's kind of amazing to have a choice to make and all you have to do is select one right for now are you going to pursue this path or this path i don't know if i'm making this clear but it's like there's no longer this sense that um by rights you ought to have had like fifty thousand years to live and the fact that you're only going to get a small fraction of that is an insult to you it's like no you could quite easily have had none and so you know doing almost anything with a little portion of time like that is becomes a lot more I mean it's a privilege but not in a way that you should feel guilty about the privilege in the sense that like it's just so such a luxury to get to enjoy
So true. So true. Um, since I, since I read the book, you know, anytime I find myself waiting in, in a queue in the supermarket <laughs> or waiting in traffic, like that's my go-to thought. I'm like, you know, I know a couple of people that have died young and I'm like, what would they give to, just to be here, you know, and just to get to experience this day. Like it's such a, it's such a great perspective and can completely shift your mood as well. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm diabetic as well. And if I was born, I don't know, a hundred years ago, I would have just died. I would have died at six. So right. I'm, li- I'm living in borrowed time, you know, in my right. view. So every day is essentially a bonus, you know, and I, I, I just yeah. think that's such a great, great view of life. Um, there's so much, I, w- I know we've only got about 10 minutes left. There's so much I want to ask you over. Um, I think one of the most important ideas I've f- found in the book as well was this idea of uh, network time and uh, how our time is more meaningful when it's spent together. So maybe if you could tell us about that, some of the research from Sweden and also the experiment that the Soviet Union tried out um, back, I think it was in the, the 30s and 40s. Yeah, let, let me see how much of this I can... Uh... I can get through. I mean, the basic idea here is just that one of the mistakes we make, I think, when we try to get in control of time and get on top of everything and get and get in the driver's seat is, is we do it in an individualistic way. We assume that the ideal, well, lots of us anyway, assume that the ideal position to be in with respect to time would be that you alone got to make all the decisions about how you spent your time. Not that you wouldn't want to spend it with friends, but that you would be the one making the decisions. And what I sort of explore in the book is the idea that there's really a lot of reason to believe that that's not the case, that if you had that level of individual control, you would be miserable, that ceding a certain amount of control of our time to the sort of rhythms of community and and other things is, is really essential because actually time is not very valuable from very much at all if it isn't properly coordinated with with other people's time. So there's this fascinating research from, I think Sweden, um, that uh, shows that people in Sweden are happier. They did this by measuring the number of antidepressant prescriptions that were that were collected on the, uh, the health service there, but they um, people in Sweden are happier to the degree that more other Swedish people are on holiday at the same time. So there's a way of describing this mathematically that I'm not capable of, but basically the, the, the level of happiness that Swedes got from being on holiday was, was proportionate to the number of other Swedes who were also on holiday at the same time. Um, and it's kind of a fascinating thought, though then it just starts to make sense when you think about it, right? Because um, if everyone's on holiday at the same time, uh, people you want to see while you're on holiday are probably on holiday too you don't have to worry that um like your inbox is filling up with emails while you're away because uh everyone else is off as well you don't have to worry that people are kind of like scheming to steal your job or something because everyone's so it's a it really speaks to these traditions like in until at least until recently in france right where you could sort of be pretty sure that of the specific two weeks or three weeks in the middle of august where it would be almost impossible to um contact anyone in an office because there is this collective synchronized taking of holiday and i've spoken to somebody since the book who worked at a big um corporation in the us who's where they where they started to practice one i think it was just one week a year where the company was just shut down for a week so otherwise you got to choose your vacation but this one week there was just nothing and how much more relaxing that is just knowing that you're not you don't have to feel like you're slightly sort of playing truant from the job of work. It's like, no, there's no work to be done. Go home. And, but that runs in the face of, you know, lots of things that have a good side to them, like, you know, flexible work policies and work from home. And, and, you know, we tend to say like, surely a good employer is the one that lets you work whenever you like as much as that's possible. And I think there's lots to that. But there's also this other side, which is that it, it really helps us benefit from time, especially leisure time, if, <clears throat> if it's coordinated with other people's. Yeah, just very quickly, they tried to, in the Soviet Union, they tried to make it so that the factory machines would run every single day, but people could still get the rest that they needed by um, 
by uh, changing the week so that it was, I think, five days long and with one day off. And then they put the whole um, working population, at least in the big cities, into different color-coded cohorts so that they had a different weekend day off uh, than the other cohorts. And the idea then was that there would be what four fifths of the population of the working population would be at work every single day, uh, but people would still get their time off. And they even tried to say that this would be wonderful for the proletariat, right? Because there wouldn't be so many queues at shops and at theaters and all the rest of it. Uh, it would be it would sort of spread things. You wouldn't get weekend crushes at uh, at, um, at, at at leisure attractions, things like that. But of course, what it did was drive everyone insane by by desynchronizing everybody. It meant that you you if you had a friend who was in a different one of these color-coded cohorts, you would never be off at the same time. Um, they said they were, they, they, the intention or the stated intention was to put husbands and wives into the same color-coded cohort, but I don't think that always happened. So you sort of break apart family, makes it impossible to have uh, large church services, which by the way, was a feature, not a bug as far as the um, Soviet leadership was concerned, right, to sort of undermine the power of the, of the church as against the power of the government. And it's just a really sort of vivid um, illustration of how people's satisfaction does require, does rely on being in a rhythm with other people. And I sort of make the argument in the book that although it's impossible to imagine that happening again uh, today, we've almost created a different, uh, 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 we've created a sort of version of it through completely opposite means, right? Instead of this very, very rigorous top-down governmental control of exactly when people are working, the more um, of a certain kind of freedom that there is, it's only a certain kind of freedom, but you know, in the gig economy, in the freelancification of the economy, in, in, in working policies that allow people to set their own hours more, lots of lack of freedom in that, all those situations too, but we all just end up on, different schedules and and you know it just becomes impossible to make or harder and harder anyway to make plans to to meet up with people or to or to um let alone sort of go on holiday with people outside your own family and things like that definitely definitely it's 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 such an important uh idea especially in modern society and i think the takeaway from that the practical thing that people can actually sort of implement in their lives is one of the things you suggest is that we should maybe think about uh, swapping flexibility of our schedules with um, community, you know, trying to get more involved in like uh, communal activities, like a bit of volunteering or sports teams or I don't think things like that there. Right. And the, the very simple way to do that is just, you know, you don't need to do that in some huge root and branch. You don't need to like become Amish or something where your whole life is governed by the rhythms of community. Just literally what it sounds like with your five side football or, you know, I, I've, not right now, but I've you often for years now been a member of a choir. They meet at a particular time of day. So already you're surrender on a particular day of the week. So already you're surrendering a certain amount of uh, total control of your schedule because, you know, it's Wednesdays at 6 p.m. And, and if you want to do this thing, you just have to live with that because there's, you know, 80 people involved and you can't have them all change schedule each week on to, to fit your, your situation. So that's just a very simple example, I think, of where giving up a certain amount of control over time brings an immediate reward that you couldn't get if, if your absolute driving goal was always individual autonomy over time. Definitely. Now, can you tell me about cosmic insignificance therapy? And I love the, the, the way you describe or the way you introduce the chapter. You talk around um, if you viewed a human life on average around 100 years and then just taking that back to the pharaohs. And, you know, that kind of gives us a perspective of um, how short a human or our time on this planet actually is am i are you with me yeah, it comes from this comes from brian mcgee the late uh english philosopher and he um he just basically said look somewhere in the world today there's somebody turning 100 and if you go back to the day they were born there was somebody then turning 100 and if you go back to the time they were born there was somebody turning 100 right so even right back to the beginning of human civilization there's been a few people who lived to 100 even though it's been a lot more than these days 
so if you sort of imagine these live these lives end to end like i just put it um you know five lives takes you back to henry the eighth and um 20 lives takes you back to jesus and 35 lives takes you back to um the golden age of the pharaohs so that you know in principle like a letter could have been passed from i mean it doesn't quite work because newborn babies can't pass letters but you know what i mean a letter could have been passed by people who could have been in the same room as each other and there would be six of them to get to the renaissance i mean it's just incredibly short how long human civilization has been and then our own lives are obviously a tiny fraction of that already very short amount Cosmic insignificance therapy is just my slightly facetious way of pointing to the fact that there's something liberating about this. There's something liberating about thinking that actually you're pretty insignificant in the scheme of the cosmos and the universe, that the big decisions that you might feel mired in indecision about are kind of not going to matter in a few hundred years. So actually, therefore, do take that risk or, or that courageous action or that bold uh, path, because the stakes aren't quite as high as we tend to assume and equally uh you know when it comes to measuring whether you thinking about whether you your life is meaningful don't set this standard that requires you to be remembered and set a legacy for thousands of years because like almost nobody can do that that's like Shakespeare and uh Michelangelo and about 10 other people you know so just like forget that and then you get to see that well, why can't it be meaningful to do things that are not necessarily hugely extraordinary or hugely um uh legacy building all sorts of things that you know make life a little bit better for a small number of people can be can be totally meaningful ways to spend your life so it's all about sort of lowering the bar a bit um again not to make you say well why do anything then i might as well just you know uh stay in bed but but to say that's precisely why to, to sort of do some exciting and interesting things and not to worry quite as much about uh, making, the, making a wrong decision. 100%. Whenever, whenever I really sort of contemplate that idea and, you know, you really do think about it and you sort of, you realize that no, no, matter, no matter what I do, no matter what I achieve in my lifetime, it's all going to be forgotten regardless of, you know, Steve Jobs talked about putting a dent in the universe, but, yeah. you know, in a few generations, no, no one is going to know who that is. And <laughs> right. yeah. And, and far from being, whenever you really do wrap your head around that, like that is not a depressing thought. I think that is a very freeing thought because like you say, it can free you up to take risks and do the things that you, you actually want to do with your life. And yeah, there's something very liberating about, about that idea. So Maybe I don't know, I don't know if that's a depressing note to end on or not, Oliver. Um, <laughs> I don't I think, think so. I'm just curious. I, I, there's a question for some reason that popped in my head earlier. If you could get a text message to everybody on the planet simultaneously, what would it say? <laughs> Am I supposed to answer that in like an incredibly self-interested way to try to juice book sales? <laughs> um, uh, I, I think that uh, part of the Thing that I'm trying to remind people of in this book and I'm trying to remind myself of really is this idea that you know life isn't a dress rehearsal that's the cliched way of putting it and I like this line from I think it's John Tarrant a Zen teacher who basically just puts this in, as the question like what if this is it and I think that's a nice little simple way to I think we might all um could do with being jolted a bit more into that perspective so it would be either that or it would be um a web link to buy copies of my book uh, but that would be a, that would be the more cynical the more cynical approach the publisher that. would want me to do that i think probably i love that so <laughs> so the book is four thousand weeks honestly it's it's an incredible book um it, it really like if you if you do get into it i think it has a potential to completely transform your relationship with time and just enjoy each day a lot more you know and You've also, so you get the book on your, on Amazon and all the usual places. And you've also got a newsletter, The Imperfectionist, um, yep. which is very good too. Um, is there anywhere else you, you would like to send people online or anything, Oliver, or any? No, I mean, my website, oliverbertman.com has all this information, both about the book and the newsletter. So that's, that's the only other place really. 
Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your, for taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure and I wish you the best of luck with the book and everything going forward. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Weekend University's Day on Human Nature online conference taking place on Sunday, December 19th, 2021. This will be a full day of interactive talks with leading psychologists, professors, and neuroscientists exploring the hidden forces that drive human behavior. In the first talk, Dr. Graham Music will discuss the surprising links between attachment patterns, neurobiology, and altruism, and how you can use these insights to create more well-being in day-to-day life. The second lecture from Cambridge neuroscientist Dr. Hannah Critchlow We'll explore what the latest neuroscience research reveals about how much free will we really have and what you can do to consciously shape a better future, both for yourself and the wider world. And the final talk will be from Dr. Nancy Segal, who will speak on how the latest research in twin studies might finally help us resolve the nature versus nurture debate. By attending live, you can interact with world-class speakers and leading academics in real time, get your questions answered in the Q&A sessions, connect with like-minded participants during the conference and get lifetime access to the recordings and all available materials from the sessions. Additionally, the Weekend University guarantees an excellent learning experience. Therefore, if you attend and aren't fully satisfied with your experience, you'll get a full refund, no questions asked. As a listener of this podcast, you can get a discount on your ticket if you go to bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021 that's bit.ly forward slash human dash nature dash 2021 and use the discount code pod when registering that's pod when registering all one word you can also find the link and the discount code in the show notes for this episode